Welcome to episode nine of Kovic Talk, where we're talking all things music and science. And my God, have I got a guest for you. The cool thing about this is we are actually recording this a second time. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to do a quick shout out to everyone who's supporting this podcast on Patreon as well. And it's just patreon.com forward slash Kovic. And I put this like I do all podcast episodes out on that platform early so people can see that before it goes public. And there was so much feedback about this episode, we had to do it again. There were so many questions. There were so many people who did the research that you suggested and then just lost their mind about it. So we're <laughs> going we're gonna to go from the start here. And I'm glad we kind of get a second run at this. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce my favorite brother, Mr. Ben Kovic. How are you doing? Not too bad. How's it going? Are you ready for this one? I think so. You ready for round two? Yeah. We're kind of we're kind of semi-rehearsed on this, aren't we? So Yeah, a lot of stuff to remember, so hopefully I don't get any uh, numbers wrong or something like that. But I wouldn't worry about shot. it because there, there's a lot to try and uncover. But yeah. before we start, um, there's one thing to, to make sure everyone realizes as they're watching this. You know, you are the brains essentially behind the production and the uh, songwriting and the, and the guitar playing and all of the kind of best parts of our music project. And uh, there's a lot of people who wanted to hear a little bit about you and the music stuff you're doing before we dive into the super geek stuff. So do you want to give us a rundown of what you've been up to recently? Yeah, I mean, um, we've been working on the second album, just getting that ready and, uh, and finished recording. So I do a lot of the production work, you know, actually getting the songs recorded mm. for iTunes and Spotify. And then um, when we go to get to play them live on tour, I play guitar on tour. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what I do. So how do you feel about diving into the deep end on a subject like this? You know the title of this is is going to make yeah. people think that you're a bit of a lunatic. Probably, and that's kind of why I like to do it, because I think that's what everyone's first impression will be. And hopefully mm -hmm. by the end of it, people might change their mind on their initial reactions to the title of the video. Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe have an opinion change. That's what I'm hoping. If anyone did hold these opinions, maybe they changed. So, Obviously, I've known you all my life. <laughs> and you are probably one of the most critical thinking people. You're the last person on the planet to buy into fad conspiracies. You, you like to deal with facts. And on that note, I kind of want to... There's a real big reason for this. I kind of want to build people a picture of you as a person right from when you were young. Um, and if I start off by saying, you know, as a young kid, I remember you being quite fascinated by how things work. You were very much into aviation, everything like military aircraft, flight simulators with games and stuff growing up. You always loved learning how things function and, and worked. And the, the big one is that you're a trained pilot as well. So when it comes to aviation, aeronautics, not only do you have this kind of passion side of the interest, but what's it like actually flying aircraft and what are the key things that you think you've learned that take you into this conversation well i mean from a young age obviously our, our dad is a pilot for people that don't know um you know he's, he's got thousands of hours as a captain he flies the fastest civilian aircraft the citation 10 mm. so growing up we'd always had a dad who could teach us how to fly from a young age so we're in a very lucky position to be able to do that and um i guess the interest sparked from there really having having a dad who could fly it's pretty cool thing to do and um yeah getting into the process of learning how to fly and going through your private pilot's license yeah, it's a very steep learning curve going from knowing a, a little amount to getting in the captain's seat and learning how to fly yourself and only have yourself to rely on in the air to keep yourself alive yeah um so yeah i mean that's that's kind of probably the reason why i got into flying was probably through through dad flying 
it's worth noting when you did your training, it wasn't just about how to fly a plane, was it? You were learning about propulsion systems, radio, you know, how radars work. There was a lot of mechanical knowledge and scientific understanding about how aircraft fly. I remember you telling me a story, not really a story, but I remember you telling me uh, about, for example, stalling aircraft. I remember you explaining that as aircraft get slower and slower in the air, there's a possibility that they can stall. Do you remember? Do you remember that yeah, thing? So, and and how you think about things like this? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's a case um, that kind of relates to the the story of the UFOs that we'll go into. Where in flying, there's quite a lot of situations where your um, your personal beliefs or your intuitions can be completely wrong in the face of science, where literally your your gut instincts your natural reactions can end up getting yourself killed so a stall is a really good example of that where my natural instinct going into a stall which is basically where the wing doesn't have enough lift to keep flying in an airplane one wing will usually drop before the other one so your natural instinct is to correct it by turning the control stick the opposite opposite way way. Mm -hmm. so that actually makes more drag on the wing that's already stalled and it will put you into a spin which can kill yourself really yeah you you crash the plane so you get taught not to do that and to have to control yourself to not pull the other way even though everything in in your your body body is telling you yeah yeah yeah. it's um it's that process that i found similar with the ufo stuff because my genuine belief um before is that i feel the chances that we're alone in the universe is Mm -hmm. tiny like minuscule yeah I think um, SETI's come out recently, the search for extraterrestrial um, intelligence. They've come out and said there's possibly 300 million planets just in our galaxy alone that could potentially harbour life. Mm. So the chances we're the only intelligent civilization, for me, I've always believed is, is very, very small and that somewhere in the universe there's another civilization that's got intelligence like well, I us. I think also the, the sheer probability that given all of the other potential hospitable like floating rocks yeah the chances that not a single one of those has had the same uh you know cocktail of ingredients that that we've had is practically zero yeah that's where we align Uh, and and again going back to the to the stall thing with the aircraft this is where we start to understand that there's an element of scientific record that exists way before us that can maybe go completely against our own gut instinct but we know we have to follow the science yeah and despite the feeling in a lot of people's uh, guts when they sit and think well we must be alone in the universe looking at it from a scientific point there's definitely a huge huge probability that we're not alone which is an interesting place to start very which, different just to, to wondering whether ufos are on the planet but it's an well, interesting place to start isn't it? that's kind of why we're here talking about this today because yeah. With the UFO stuff, I've kind of, I've gone from having my personal belief of the chances that there's extraterrestrials here on Earth or there's UFOs that are from an alien civilization fl- flying around yeah. in our atmosphere were like pretty much none. I like really didn't believe it that because I think the chances were so small of that actually being the case. Um, but after seeing the things that I've seen now, seeing the video evidence, the testimonies, from very high-ranking you know, military officials that we're going to go into, I think my opinions swayed massively the other way now. <laughs> that makes me want to bring on the next part of your upbringing, which is definitely going to be the mathematical side of your history. Yeah. So 
you go through pilot school, trained pilot, trained observer, understand you know mechanics of aircraft, how they work, how, how they fly, the science of it. Then you go and take a math degree. Yeah, yeah. The University of Sussex, I think around the same time you're doing your, your mm. physics degree as well. Um, the thing I loved about math was you're either right or you're wrong. Mm-hmm. There's no in between, there's no gray area. You either have the correct answer or you don't. So on top of that, there was a lot of dealing with huge numbers in cosmology. Mm. One of the uh, modules was cosmology. There's a lot of calculations of distances to stars, measuring like the Doppler shifts, figuring out if the universe is expanding or contracting. So it really put into perspective when I was learning that stuff, just really how infinitesimally small we are in the world and in the universe. Like the numbers that we're talking about in the universe are so big we can't comprehend. We can't even get close as humans to comprehending it. They, they really freak me out as well. Like as yeah. We've spoken about this before, and when you actually sit and you look out at the night sky and you actually just get the tiniest semblance of understanding of the, the orders of magnitude of distance we're talking about. It's just, it's, yeah. we're, our evolutionary like path as humans, we just, we can't get it. Can can't we? Cope we can't, 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 can't no. cope with it. And, uh, but the, the reason I'm setting it up like this, and I, I hope that uh, it's making sense for people listening is I just want to paint the picture of you as a person. <laughs> right. I want to paint the picture of, of you being someone who, who is particularly educated in particular fields that this is very relevant to. And maybe that's why you're one of the people out in the world who started to just join the dots of a few things. Uh, and we can see by what's happening in the world that maybe not so many people are getting it yet. I feel this video might just kind of serve on a plate a couple of the really big moments in your life that have started to solidify the bricks in the wall of, of this kind of UFO thing. So when in your kind of observations, when was the first time you stopped and thought something's not feeling right about this whole UFO thing? Do you remember when that was? Yeah, I think um, you know everyone had heard of Roswell as the standard classic mm. story of um, an alien craft that had apparently crashed, which was it's got some compelling testimonies from people that were there saying that it was a cover-up. Um, but again, like the, the hard evidence is pretty scarce. Um, it's, it's a bit of a, a tough one to prove outright. You know, it definitely was that. <laughs> but I guess that was probably an initial start. Um, I'm just going to throw in a little bit of information here as well that just by coincidence I thought was really strange. So the Roswell crash happened in 1947 in okay. July. And the CIA was formed in September of 1947, like two months after. That's I thought, weird. I thought that was a bit weird. Okay, yeah. fine. <laughs> um, but anyway. Could be complete coincidence, but fine. Could be, right, yeah. yeah, fine. I think uh, one of the other stories that really struck an over me was uh, from a, book, a guy called Bob Lazar. Now, um, I've seen the interview, and we're going to put a link below this video for people uh, yeah. as you describe this. Very important that everyone knows as they're li- listening to what Ben's saying we've got all of the links to all of the references of where he's yeah. getting this stuff from. Yeah, so Bob Lazar uh, had claimed that he was a scientist, uh, physicist that worked at a place called S4 mm. out um, in near Papoose Lake, near Area 51. And he had claimed that he'd worked on reverse engineering the propulsion system from an alien spacecraft that had been recovered, either from a crash or an archaeological dig or something like that is, is what he said. Pretty big claim. Pretty big claim. And most of these stories that you'd hear about these UFO crazies coming out saying that they've been abducted or making up these extravagant stories, it's always really hard to tell if anyone has got a semblance of sanity and, sanity yeah, and, yeah. and credibility about the story. 
And I think Bob's one stood out to me as having this semblance of like credibility of like, hold on a minute. What, enough that it convinced you or you watched Bob Lazar's interview and, and was still on the fence? Uh, I'd say I was on the fence, but after looking at all the other stuff that's happened, mm. I've kind of got to the stage of thinking the chance of, of this all being coincidence, again, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and smaller the more and more I see about it. So what was it in Bob's testimony or his interview? And again, this is filmed, isn't it? Bob's yeah. Uh, interview. Yeah, interview from 1989, I think it was. What are the things that he said in his testimony that he worked on alien spacecraft? What are the things he said that struck a nerve with you? Um, he said that he was tasked with reverse engineering the propulsion system specifically. So he was trying to figure out how the thing was powered. Now, obviously, we've got sci-fi back then from the days of star wars you know you can make up anything you wanted but he had to come out and basically said that this thing worked by focusing gravitational waves <laughs> it could produce its own gravity by firing a par particle through a cyclotron into this element 115 that doesn't exist on earth has, it very specifically has to be this element because it has to be the stabilized type of this element for very specific reasons it was uh, like a matter and antimatter uh, reaction so it was like near on um perfect efficiency there's no like heat residue from uh from that uh process happening and then the decay from this element 115 would be put through a tuning tube or something like that into a gravitational amplifier so it sounds pretty sci-fi like you read it out of a yeah so at the time he's saying in the interview there's a couple of theories about gravity whether it's gravitons or permeated by waves so mm -hmm. they're both theories but he's stating pretty clearly this thing works by focusing gravitational waves this is where a, a couple of people who listen to the podcast know that about my background in being in physics and i yeah. couldn't help since our last conversation yeah i couldn't help but dig in and i was like right something's got to be i call bullshit somewhere along here and here's the things that freak me out about the bob lazar interview the conviction in which he talks about gravitational waves being used as a propulsion mechanism yeah. was strange because it wasn't a discussion for him. It wasn't like, you know, and if you rewind the clock back to the to the 1940s, 50s... It wasn't jets or anything like that. It was not well, I rotors. Mean, we, we were still trying to figure it out, right? It's like, okay, gravity was a really weak force in comparison to other forces that we observe. It's like, how does that work? We thought it was gravitons, like a force mediating particle that was exchanging gravity. And we thought that, okay, maybe these gravitons go through different dimensions, which is why they're so yeah. weak. It, it, that was the leading theory at the time. It wasn't really gravitational waves. And then there's the second thing, which is this, you know, quote unquote element 115 that doesn't exist. And then- <laughs> well it yeah. doesn't exist on earth it yeah. doesn't exist in the periodic table or whatever then when we fast forward to don't hold me on dates but obviously this is youtube someone's gonna look it up element 115 gets synthesized for the first time around the sort of 2004 2005 mark yeah so so this guy's like with absolute convictions like the elements 115 we spin a cyclotron we fire something at it the stabilizer the type of the stabilizer type of it so so not only do we go to 2005 then people actually go oh, holy shit like we <laughs> look we've made this element 115 it's heavily radioactive and it decays into all of these particles but the problem with that is that when it's synthesized it's only for a very very short period of time so it yes. decays and it's gone within milliseconds exactly he's saying you know there's possibly up to like 500 pounds of this stuff that they have from the craft 
like <laughs> they have the yeah. material of this stuff well then so that that's like kind of little beacon number one flashing in my mind and then secondly was lido and yeah. for people who don't know or aren't aware we sent up whole bunch of satellites and and we had all these kind of laser mirror experiments a whole load of really really geeky shit that basically was set to measure the gravitational um interference happening on earth from two black holes colliding and lido was a huge experiment do you know do you know happens now what year it was 2015? It was 2015 yeah yeah so 2015 happens spend god knows how much money on this experiment and then we go oh gravity is permeated by waves and we proved it and we're like yep there we go we measure it for the first time so yeah there's two things happening bob lazar his um interview and testimony is either based on some theories and he kind of guesses you know either it's just a complete fluke that he's got a couple of these things on the money uh or he's telling the truth yeah and uh, combined with the way that i felt he was explaining it just the gut feeling you when you watch him speak is that um I would expect someone to, when they lie about something like that to be elaborating and, and going over the top on the story and um, maybe saying things out of context, <laughs> way out of proportion. When you hear him speak and the way that he describes this experience that he had, one thing that struck me was when he said he had a look on the ship and he got to have a look inside it. So he claims to have actually been yeah. on an alien spacecraft. Yeah. And he's, right. he's drawn a diagram of how the thing looks, the rough measurements of it, where the engines are, the gravitational amplifiers and things like that. And he said the feeling that he got when he looked inside was an ominous feeling that he shouldn't be there. I thought that's such a strong descriptive way of saying that story. It's not what you'd expect. It, it? I wouldn't expect that to be said by someone who was lying about it mm. because it felt like a genuine emotion. That's a pretty rare one as humans to have an ominous feeling that you shouldn't be somewhere as a human. Like on planet Earth, yeah. it's like, you, of course, we can go anywhere we want. And so to have that, that feeling struck me as a strong descriptive term that he used. So you're watching the Bob Lazar interview. You've got a feeling in your gut that maybe he's not being, you know, disingenuous. You, you kind of believe yeah. in him. It, so that's the first moment that you kind of, you, do you believe him then? Or are you still thinking, well, hold on a minute. This guy is, hasn't got any hard evidence. I'm not there yet. How did you feel after that? Thing. yeah it was, it was more uh, he hasn't got the hard evidence to definitively prove what he was saying but i found the story was so compelling and made so much sense yeah that i was swayed more towards believing him than not but still there's a lot of things yeah. that are a bit rocky about it there's a lot of people definitely ready to discredit him in a hundred different ways uh yeah. there's a lot of things that don't necessarily add up with bob having not recorded some kind of proof or tangible stuff he claims to have some element 115 somewhere it's all a bit like you there's yeah. enough holes that you can you can kind of you can't conclude much from it can you at the end of the no, day no it's just a very very interesting story but coupled with some of the, the descriptive things that he said about these craft when you combine it with what's been happening recently in the videos we've seen recently again it's mm -hmm. like what are the chances that what this guy said in 1989 yeah we're seeing 20 30 40 years later like yeah. happening <laughs> it's, it's yeah it's crazy so 
on zero to a hundred, where do you think you're sitting on the on the spectrum of believing this shit's real? Like roughly after Bob, well, Bob's after, story. after Bob's, we talking ten percent, twenty percent? After Bob's story, I'm I'm probably like a like a forty percent. Okay, so what Pretty what is it that starts to knock you past the forty percent? What happens next in your? Well, if I just had the final detail from what Bob was describing from working on these sources of these flying sources, he said he was working on. Mm. Um, one of the details that he said was the way that these gravity amplifiers work. They basically create like um, like a downhill <laughs> that the craft chases to to move. And it okay. creates its own gravity bubble that it can move around in so it doesn't feel the effects of inertia relative to the craft. And when you say inertia, do you mean to say that if the craft was to accelerate suddenly in one direction, whatever's driving it isn't going to get slammed on the yeah, inside yeah. of the wall? So even though it's darting around a million miles an hour, whatever's inside it isn't feeling the kind of yeah. acceleration. Kind of, of like at the moment on the planet, we're going around at thousands of miles an hour. We don't feel it relative to us. We're not getting flung off <laughs> okay, into yeah. space yeah. Um, that kind of idea and and the way that he also said when these crafts are moving around slowly they're kind of hovering bumbling about and then when they want to go fast they'll, they'll rotate 90 degrees to focus these gravity amplifiers in a certain direction for fast travel right so when you combine that with some of the videos that have been coming out recently for me it's like oh, there's got to be something to this that couldn't have just been chance that he said that and we're now seeing that in these videos. That's really weird. And do you want to, when you talk about these videos, again, you're going to put links in, yeah. but, but what, what have you seen? What, you're, you're saying that there's actually hard proof now of UFOs actually being recorded on camera. Yeah, so, so this is the line for me where things started to become real, really, because we've, we've now all of a sudden gone from UFO stories and folklore in the past of mm -hmm. someone like Bob Lazar, just do you believe him or not? There's no solid proof. So now we have video evidence of these things flying around and they're not CGI'd, they're not faked, they're not made up. There's been... You know that there's a lot of people listening right now that are going to find it very hard to believe that we have documented video proof yes, of UFOs yes. flying around. Yeah. And these are officially released videos from the Department of Defense, from the Pentagon. Uh, the Pentagon released these? Yeah. Like the Pentagon, the Pentagon yeah. right? Okay. Uh, they they have a statement. I think I've got it on my phone. If you want to read it, it would be worth re definitely yeah. going into a, into a little bit of detail on it because I am I'm definitely more interested in building the picture. Probably before we go into those big moments that we are seeing now. Again, uh, this is a, this is the second time we're recording this. A big reason for that is some news broke the day we were going to release this podcast. Yeah. We'll go into that news in a, in a bit. We won't go into that right now, but suffice to say, this isn't just some gazette somewhere in some local no. town releasing some grainy pictures of some disc. This is the New York Times, the Pentagon, the US government coming forward and going... Um, <laughs> we've got a load of shit flying yeah. around and we don't know what it is and yeah. they're pretty confident at this point having had a chat with their mates in china and russia they're like yeah not us not us so okay but what's the what is the statement then before we go into the next part that the pentagon have said so these videos that have been released uh i think 2017 they were released and more recently a couple of days ago uh they said the department of defense is releasing the videos in order to clear up any misconceptions by the public on whether or not the footage that has been circulating was real or whether or not there is more to the videos. The aerial phenomena observed in the videos remain characterized as unidentified. That's from the US Department of Defense. 
So we're going to talk about one of the first videos to drop. And correct me if I'm wrong, this is where the, um, <laughs> if we think about this percentage spectrum again, of you know, you watch Bob Lazar's interview, you're kind of 40% there, not quite. The next thing's Commander Fravor. Yeah, now this is linked to the first video that was released. So there were three videos released in 2017. The first one was called FLIR or F-L-I-R. Mm-hmm. Second one was, um, I believe it was called Go Fast. And the third one was called Gimbal. So the first video was from the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group in 2004 with Command Fravor. Okay. That's the very first video. And then the other two were filmed from F-18 uh, fighter jets from the USS Roosevelt, 2015. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was the Nimitz case especially which got me fascinated in it because here we have a video that's been released by the Department of Defense filming a UFO that's been verified by the Pentagon as real. And I'm like, what? surely we can't actually have footage of this thing. And there we are. There's video evidence from the gun camera of an FLIR pod, forward-looking infrared pod, used to target enemy aircraft and uh, lock on missiles and things like that so an flir pod for people who don't know and again because your understanding of military aircraft is is pretty cool uh, but if you could lego it for us what does it what is it what does it do it's um it's a pod that's attached on usually a wing of a fighter jet so the 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 jets in this case were uh, f-18 super hornets they were like the latest aircraft in the american air force and navy the latest development that we have like basically so it's kind of the, the most high-tech camera infrared observer it's got different modes that you can basically if yeah. you're going to want to look at something it films the, um in the infrared range so right. you can see when things are hot or cold uh, relative to the, to the surroundings so it's very useful for tracking like a, an aircraft because you can see the heat signature of the engines which the missiles can then lock onto in the sense that if we think about a typical jumbo jet flying along, obviously it's burning fuel, chucking out the engines out back so it goes forward. So this this thing, you'll be able to see the heat of, of all of yeah, the... Yeah, you'd see all the engines lighting up from this thing. Right. There's a huge signature, yeah. So the thing I'm straight away finding weird about this as we go through it is you're saying you've got the most high-tech observational equipment in the world and they have filmed unidentified flying objects yeah. knocking around. Okay, so take take me from the start then. This is the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group. Yeah. This is the best of the best with the American military. Yes, this is pretty much the pinnacle of you know, the US military. This is, this is a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier mm. that's holding the most advanced aircraft that they have, the F-18 Super Hornets. Um, there's a submarine accompanying. There's a couple of destroyers, I think, accompanying it. And there's also a missile ship called the USS Princeton, uh, which is armed with the Spy-1 radar system. Now, the Spy-1 radar system, uh, this is back in 2004, was the most advanced radar system, I believe, at the time. And this thing could track a baseball up at 80,000 foot, just to give a, a comparison of how small this thing could detect at that distance. I wouldn't, yeah, I was just thinking, I wouldn't have thought that'd be possible. So if you're flying on holiday, you're going up to, what, 30,000, 40,000 foot? Yeah, like... To put it in perspective, like a commercial airliner will be flying about 37,000 foot, about 550 miles an hour. So you double that, you go twice as high as when you're on a normal plane, and you take a baseball, and that radar can, can pick up the movement pick, of that tiny thing. Pick that signature up, yeah. 
but even if it's not producing heat no it's just literally the bouncing just of the, the reflection yeah right, reflection okay. of the signal so literally anything bigger than a baseball in our atmosphere basically up to eighty thousand foot yeah eighty thousand foot is going to get seen this this thing can detect it okay right so it. the story of of that uh 2004 nimbus incident goes along the lines of whilst they're out on a training exercise off the coast of california they had been picking up on this radar system five to ten tracks uh, radar tracks of objects that were flying about 120 knots at 28,000 foot so that's a really peculiar flight signature for a plane Why? because at that altitude the air is kind of just thin enough that you need to go quite fast to maintain enough lift on the wings and why, why is that? Uh, because the lower you are in the atmosphere, the more dense the air is. Right. So if you're flying on a conventional wing, the wing works by the difference in pressure below and above the wing. So if the air is thicker, you can get more lift out of it. But the higher you go, the air gets less dense. So there's less air to generate as much lift, oh, with but you have less drag. Okay, so, so the air is so thin as you go higher and higher and higher that the aircraft wing can't even get enough lift because the air is well, so thin. Well, you need to go a lot faster to be able to generate the same amount of lift. Okay, so you're saying that that something that is really, really high has to be going a certain velocity in order to stay afloat. It's to stay flying, so, yeah. And 120 knots isn't... So, yeah, I was talking to, to Dad about this and going right. through it because the, the radar operator had also said that the tracks are quite strange. They're not like any normal signature they'd see. And uh, kind of the only conclusion we came to was it's probably either a hot air balloon, which in that case would have to be a pretty specialised hot air balloon. And it wouldn't be flying in a formation of five. A weather balloon? Yeah. I mean, that's about the only thing that it could be. But it wouldn't make sense that there were five of them, all flying in the same bearing, spaced out in formation. Okay. So it couldn't really be a plane. If it was a plane it would be very, very close on the verge of stalling all the time and basically falling out of the sky. Mm-hmm. It's too high for a helicopter because the maximum altitude a helicopter has ever been is about 25,000 foot. Okay. So for something to be flying that high, that slow, consistently in a formation of like five to ten of these things is a really strange signature. So that's the first thing that they were like, this is weird. And this is all documented because you don't yep. mess around with this stuff. This is no military. Well, well, part of that issue was that because they were picking these tracks up um, around where they were doing the training exercises... They thought it might be spy equipment from Russia or China or something. Well, the first thing is they don't know what it is, right? So yeah. it could be it could be anything. Um, well, I would have thought that the first thing that comes to mind for most people listening is going, it's obviously a technology from another nation. Someone's obviously put some balloons up there to go and watch what the Americans are doing with these naval ships. Yeah, so they decided to go and check it out because they didn't know. So they've got to go find out, well, what, what is it? Right. Um, on top of that, they got these things flying around in their airspace and it's presenting a possible collision, right? Possible mid-air collision for the jets that are operating in the area. So they decided to go and check it out and see what it's all about because they'd be picking these tracks up for a couple of days. Mm. So one day, Kevin Day, who's the radar operator on, on the Princeton, he had sent out... Uh, a real-world task in for the jets that were just leaving from the Nimitz, and that just happened to be Commander Fravor's flight with his wingman. Now, Commander Fravor's the head of the the like top of the Black Aces. He was he was at Top Gun School along with Kevin Day. 
like these guys are at the top of their game, right? This is, um, these are not like training pilots. Mm. You know, this is a guy with thousands of hours under his belt. He's been directed to the radar vector of where these, where these tracks are coming from to go and try and have a look at one. So they say we got. So, so just so I've got that right, USS Princeton, bunch of super high tech jets on board. They go right, pick this thing up on the radar, and then they now they go and send these jets in. And Commander Frey was sitting there, ready to go and essentially intercept this yeah, thing. Yeah, they they've been given the the headings to go and intercept this thing that they're seeing on the radar. So obviously they're they don't know what they're going to look for. They're just being sent to this target destination as they're sent to go and intercept they get to an area on the radar called merge plot which is where the little dot on the radar is the same as the dot of the f-18 jet gotcha so on the radar when you're looking at a 2d display they're in the same like vertical airspace so it's up to the pilot then to have a look in the visual arena around him to try and figure out what's been picked up on the radar what are you looking for Mm. what is this thing so as they get near to where the coordinates were from this track he looks out the window with his wingman and they look down at the sea and bearing in mind this is a completely calm day blue skies calm sea he looks down at the surface of the water and there's like white water on it on the surface as if something has just crashed and gone through it mm. like a ship's just sunk or something and they say um you know they thought they were on the scene of an aircraft crash that's what they thought it was at a first look um and as they were looking down there like they're all scrambling to get on the radio saying like, do you see, like, do you see this? And they'd seen this 40 foot white tic-tac shaped object buzzing around on the surface about two and 300 foot above this white disturbance in the water. And they describe it as the movement being like a ping pong on the inside of a glass, like dotting around erratically side to side, instantaneously moving from one direction to another. So Commander Fravor's wingman stays up on high cover, like looking down, and Commander Fravor decides to go in and try and get as close to this thing as possible to have a look, see what it is. So as he's gone... This is what I'm finding weird. So he's, he's looking at this. Bearing, human eyeballs now. Human this eyeballs is, are this, two yeah, of them, yeah. yeah. So two pilots that are military trained observers. These guys have got to know all of the enemy aircraft for target identification purposes, right? You can't just be looking at something in the sky and be wondering what it is, should you shoot it on, should you not? Yeah. Yeah, you've you got to be trained in knowing what you're looking at. And, you know, they're both seeing this white 40-foot long tic-tac thing buzzing around on the surface. So he goes in to try and get a closer look. As he starts making a right turn in to go and have a look and descend in, he said this thing starts to come up and starts mirroring him on the turn in the circle. So he tries to get as close as he can by cutting across the circle to shorten the distance and get there quicker. And he said, as he's cut across the circle, this thing, as it's come up on the nose, has just shot off in a different direction faster than he's ever seen before. And that's just bang up. Just, just gone, like in a second, out of, out of sight from both of them. Bear in mind, this is coming from a pilot who's a trained observer who should know what enemy aircraft are looking like what all aircraft look like do you think someone like that could just be really tired and seeing things <laughs> no <laughs> no but then surely i mean there's there's, there's so many questions that people but this is both of them though right it's not just one it's yeah both of the pilots because even as i was asking that when you go well surely he must have been seeing something it's like no because this is where the radar comes in 
Yes. And well, and also two of them have seen it. It's not just him, right? Yeah. And and bearing in mind, you've got a pilot who is used to intercepting enemy aircraft, dealing with combined um, intercept speeds of like a thousand knots plus. So he's used to seeing things like going past him very, very quickly, saying that this thing had shot off faster than he'd ever seen. That's quite a statement coming from someone like him. So where'd it go? So this is where it starts getting weird. So that if you take two stories, one is Commander Fravor's story where he said this thing had apparently gone from where he was mm. to his cap point 60 miles away. What's a cap point? It's a, a combat air patrol point. Okay. Which I think is where the radar operator basically sets up some patrols to guard the airspace, I think. Um, he said this thing had gone to the cap point 60 miles away in under a minute. Now... Hold on, hold on. They're tracking the, the tic-tac on the radar. They say it goes to a point 60 miles away in... In under a minute. So... The details My here math are, isn't too good, but yeah, okay. <laughs> so so there's, we've got two bits of information here. One from the program Unidentified, which I'll link in as well, where he says this thing has gone 60 miles in under a minute. And then another one, which is an interview with the radar operator who would have the most detail, right? Because he's looked at the logs the day after okay. and got the numbers as exact as possible. Right. So if you take Commander's Fra- Commander Fravor's one, which is saying 60 miles in under a minute, that's 3,700 miles an hour, something like that. It's, it's hypersonic. 3,000 miles an hour plus. I'm trying to think to, again, to kind of Lego this down for, for, for me, <laughs> for people listening. 37,000 miles no, an no, hour. So 3,700 miles an hour. 3,700 miles an hour. But if you listen to Kevin Day, who was the radar operator on the Princeton, right. who, who had the logs from the radar, he was saying it went 60 miles in two seconds. So Surely that's like the speed of light. It's, it's underneath the speed of light. So it's, it works out about 108,000 miles an hour. <laughs> and they, uh, this is, okay, okay, we've got to slow down a little bit because this is, this is undisputed. There's, this is, they got this on the radar. They're looking at this object. They're tracking it. The guy's seen it, two people have seen it, and they've gone, we have the measurement. We can actually, see. how do they know it's yeah. the same object? How do they know it's not something that's a different object that's appeared somewhere else whilst the other one's gone off? I don't know if there's well, some cloaking device. That's, I, possibly. I, I, I think they would see... So I don't know what the resolution of the radar would be with the refresh rate, but, but they'd I imagine see they'd, they would all along the way. Would yeah, they? or they'd probably see a blurred line right. or something. Um, but we we've got a scale here from the conservative estimate of three thousand seven hundred miles an hour, which is hypersonic, right? Or one hundred eight thousand miles an hour, which is probably the more accurate reading from the radar operator. Well, then the next question is: if this really happened, how on earth would they? be able to come forward and just talk about this publicly and why would you like surely this would be kept like completely under wraps well this is kind of where the whole ufo stigma stuff comes in because having that is actually a powerful tool because if you have a pilot who wants to come forward and talk about this you just label him as crazy and he's seeing things that's such a good point because if you're like top gun and if you worked your whole life to be the, the pinnacle of like the US military as a fighter pilot, the last thing you're going to do is risk your career by coming up to your, you know, captain or whatever and being like, I yeah, I'm, I'm seeing shit. Like, yeah. oh, I saw a spacecraft. They'd be like, yeah. yeah. Am I good to fly that right, $18 million dollar jet tomorrow? Let's, yeah. just, <laughs> let's just put you... Yeah, yeah, okay. 
Okay. Yeah. So, right. so there's so many questions I already have about about this. Combining that with the other reading that Kevin Day had, where you know when he he said he'd come down from eighty thousand foot down to twenty eight thousand foot, where they saw these tracks going about one hundred twenty knots, and then he said they went from a, uh, from twenty eight thousand foot down to sea level in point seven eight seconds, and he very clearly says that as well because he measured it looks at the logs measured that time that would work out about twenty five thousand miles an hour going from twenty eight thousand foot down to sea level now the only thing that would do that would create a massive impact in the water wouldn't it we wouldn't have anything that would be able to stop before the water say, is it like a comet but it's not going to be a comet is it no not something that not something's going to fall and stop and then go down yeah, fall then stop then hover then move slowly 120 knots then go back down to sea level i guess I mean, going through all this, it just seems too too good to be true that this is all documented. But again, for people who are watching, listening, you have to see this for yourself. You have to make your own yeah. mind up. You have to go Google Captain Fravor, Commander Fravor. Uh, you have to go and listen to this guy talk and hear his own testimony. It's very, very rational, very sensible, well-educated, trained fighter yeah. pilot. He's not your typical guy who's... If anyone's going to know what this could have been in a... Uh, what's the word? In the inventory of other air forces, mm-hmm. it's that man. <laughs> well... He's going to know. Jumping one leap ahead, let's give the benefit of the doubt and say, right, there's clearly some things knocking around in US airspace that we have no idea how to combat let's say like if this thing yeah. has capabilities way beyond anything that we understand and just to I put that have... into perspective in terms of uh what we would have had at that time and and aircraft within the inventory just as some as some measurements if you think a commercial airliner is thirty-seven thousand feet in altitude yeah 550 miles an hour our dad's fastest civilian aircraft fifty-one thousand foot about 700 miles an hour SR-71, which is like one of the most high-tech reconnaissance aircraft mm. flying at 2,200 miles an hour up at 85,000 foot. So we're getting higher and higher. And then you have the X-15, which can be going 4,500 miles an hour and up to 300,000 foot, like basically a rocket. All of these things do not have instantaneous acceleration. <laughs> and we can't even achieve that speed that was measured. Apart from the X-15, is the only one that could have got to that speed but bearing in mind, we're at 28,000 foot. The air is too, probably too thick down there for it to get through at that speed. And down to sea level, I mean, the sea level speed record is less than 1,000 miles an hour. So why do you not think that this is some next level technological leap from, from another superpower on Earth? Why do you think that this isn't the Chinese who have managed to develop something crazy or, you know, Russians or anyone for that matter? So this was the second point of things that I'd seen which really started to make me go... Well, yeah, where we are on the scale at this point then. What's happening? Uh, That for me was... Shoved it probably up to like the sort of 75, 80%. Like either all of that footage is all faked and everyone's lying about it Mm. for some weird conspiracy Okay, hold on, slow down. There's footage of the Commander Fravor thing? Yes. Ah, wow. Okay, right. Sorry, yes. So so after he'd went out and seen that, yeah. when he landed back on the ship, the very next flight that went out, which was piloted by a guy called uh, Chad Underwood, I think, he said, I'm going to go and film this thing. Right. So he went out, 
um, in another Super Hornet, I think it was, with this FLIR gun pod, targeting pod, radar. Yeah. And he went out and actually captured what they'd seen before. So this is the footage that you can watch on YouTube called FLIR. Released this, by the Pentagon. Yes. Yes, released and declassified and basically said, this is a real video, real footage that you're about to see. So you can go and watch that. And it's, I've linked it in the description. And for obviously the, for the sake of the podcast, although we can't play that video, what are you seeing in this, in this video? So on that, you see basically a tic-tac shaped object on this screen. And you get a lot of information from that. There's, it says like the altitude, the range speed and things like that. And what happens in the, in the footage is it's focusing on this object. It zooms in a little bit. And you can, you can see it's a weird kind of tic-tac shape. And you can see the heading moving very, very slightly from right to left. It's like moving like a degree at a time. It goes from right to left and gets to about eight degrees left. You can see at the very top. And then this thing just disappears out of view. So bearing in mind, this is from a targeting pod designed to be locking on to yeah. targets to not escape so that you can fire a missile at it. I was just going to say, this isn't your typical camera VHS you know, no. blurry thing that someone's holding out in, out in the sticks. This is, this is the highest grade, highest definition possible kind of. Well, I mean, yeah, it's still a little bit on the grainy side because of the nature of what, how far the thing is away right. that you're looking at. Um, but it's more, what you're seeing in this video is, it bears so much weight because any other conventional aircraft that you'd see on this thing, you'd be able to see the heat signatures. Yeah, like we said before, yeah. you see the gas shooting you'd, you'd, out, you see the... Yeah, yeah, you'd see exhaust somewhere. Yeah. Um, the thing has no wings. It has no rotors. It has no jet engines. It's just seemingly working by anti-gravity. It's just hovering there, like with nothing else around so it. So creepy, isn't it? Just hovering there. And um, it's it's weird that this it's weird that you're not making this up. No, <laughs> it's really weird that you're not bullshitting that this is actually stuff that's actually out and has been vetted. I mean, look, I know there's going to be loads of people here that are going to be like, oh yeah, the American government and the Pentagon they've got together and made some bullshit video to like, but why to to what do you mean? But why? why? Well, why to to have people like you or anyone else for that matter be. Um, uh, you know, shiny object away from the real shit that they're doing, away from like some... Okay, so take that example, right? It's a cover-up for the real shit that they're doing. Kind of like what happened with the SR-71 program and the F-117 Nighthawk, you know, the stealth bomber, right. stealth fighter, where they would play on UFO reports to hide the fact that they were actually developing these aircraft. So they did do that then? So the government even has a history of putting bogus stuff out there just like, to... Yeah, using these UFO reports to like discredit what was really going on. Right. Um, but if they were doing that for this, then why would they have spent trillions of dollars developing fixed-wing aircraft even today, like developing the Raptors and things like that, when they have this technology? Because they want to keep it under wraps. They want to keep it away from the Chinese and the Russians. <laughs> okay, so where this breaks down for me is connecting stories that happened from the cold war era so right this is where it gets a little bit even more crazy <laughs> throughout the 60s there were loads of reports and again i'm linking videos to interviews with a lot of military personnel these are high-ranking officers these are missile launch officers 
Yeah, these not are, that people don't trust you, but they're going to be following these links and they're going to yeah. be looking this shit up. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's interviews with a lot of uh, these people about incidents that happened over U.S. military bases for the U.S. Uh, nuclear arsenal for their mis- uh, missile sites. Right. Okay. And also in in England as well, in Rendlesham Forest, uh, RAF Bentwaters. There's lots of stories of UFO incursions above the missile sites, where UFOs had been spotted hovering over and tampering with missiles bollocks that's that was my first thought surely not there's so many people you're saying that in the 1970s we had UFO, 60s yeah we had ufos knocking around particularly over nuclear bases yeah just for lols <laughs> well this is where you know you start going down the rabbit hole of like the intention of these things because after 1945 when the americans dropped the first nukes on japan after that, that's when UFO sightings started to spike all around the test grounds of where they were testing missiles. So 1945 onwards, 47, like Los Alamos, where they had the Manhattan Project, like they started getting a lot of UFO reports around their nuclear sites. Okay. But these specific cases in the 60s and 70s, these UFOs had actually tampered with and in some cases, shut down and armed nuclear missiles. Yeah, that's the. I think that's the point. And this is all documented again. Like you, yeah. There's a, a guy called Robert Salas. He was a launch officer, right, at um, uh, Minor Air Force Base, I think, in Montana. Mm-hmm. So this guy is in charge of launching nuclear missiles. He's not the sort of person that's going to be bullshitting about this stuff, is he? Well, I don't know. It just sounds too much. It's too much to believe that it's true because you're basically saying, look, if the US or the UK had some UFO knock over one of their one of their nuclear arsenals and just turn stuff off, it'd be all out war. That that that's probably the biggest like act of aggression you could ever make is to go to a to a foreign nation and start disarming. Well, I think actually attacking them would probably be bigger, but. You know, but that it, is a form of attack. But, but put yourself in, in America's shoes, right? You've just had something fly over your missile base and switch off your nukes without... How? You, like what? No. <laughs> but like, how do they say that happened? They what, A UFO flies over and then everything gets turned off? Basically, yeah. So in Robert Salas's case, he was saying his guard that was above ground, he's down in the silo, mm-hmm. was reporting this orange glowing object hovering about the site when all of a sudden all the missiles went into a, a no-go state, which means they can't be launched. It's yeah, and a big orange ball <laughs> knocks around a big nuclear missile base and turns off. I mean, surely these have got to be the highest security systems in the whole world. Yeah, whether it's the whether it's the software end of things in terms of how the things are run, or the hardware in terms of like the guards around and everything's going to be like Fort Knox. That's yep. the thing that I am not believing slash getting is is this is not something that feels like it could ever have happened there's a guy called robert hastings who's interviewed in his words hundreds of people from these bases with their testimonies on this um and you have people again real people have seen this stuff and they've seen it and they said yep i saw it it came over the base yeah shut down the nukes and then there's there's official reports are there of these things happening military reports they're all told not to talk about it Mm-hmm. To, to shut up be quiet um 
Now, to me, that does also make sense that you'd be told to not talk about it, right? At the because, time, yeah, yeah. Because, well, for a number of reasons, you don't want anyone knowing that <laughs> someone's got the capability to shut down your most powerful weapons. Yeah. But number two, this thing that you might be seeing, like if somehow you could capture it or study it and figure out how it worked, that would give you a massive upper hand militarily on yeah, your side. Yeah, okay. So that, you know, it makes sense that they would be told not to talk about it. But as we fast forward the years on where we are now, we can actually go back and look at this stuff because it's been, what, declassified? Um, I'm not sure how much of it's been declassified. I know there will be some of it, yeah, that you could probably find. Right. I think they have snippets of this on the programs that I've linked to UFOs and nukes. Um, by Hold on, the USS Nimitz was a nuclear. A nuclear yeah. So it's like these things are buzzing around the earth. They're like nuclear things, yeah. Turning turning our nukes off, being like, don't mess around with this stuff. Yeah. And bearing in mind, like, a nuclear missile, if one goes down, it's pretty rare. These guys were saying there were cases where they had whole flights of missiles go down, like 10 missiles simultaneously going down. And the Boeing engineers that were tasked to go in and figure out what turned it off, they were basically saying it was an external input that had turned it off. They, They couldn't find anything wrong with the missile no reason for it to have turned off and all of this coincided with the fact that they had ufos flying around above the base and in some cases shining beams down through the silos and one in 1976 i think they described the ufo that's flying alongside the base as a 50 foot white cigar shaped object no slash tic tac in 60 years before the 1967 oh sorry 1976 that one was i think and here we have video oh, footage so of 2004 creepy. of like the exact same thing being described by Commander Fraser. So you think that 40, these things, foot long tic-tac. you think these things have been knocking around for, for a while. years? Yeah. Way back during the Cold War times? Yeah. I mean, I don't think like this is, this is the testimonies from yeah. hundreds of military personnel who... <laughs> well, put it this <laughs> way. I say it like that because, right? because I know you've taken a lot of time to scrutinize the evidence that you've seen mm. because you're the sort of person that when you and and th- this is why i trust you and this is why we're doing this because i'm like people need to hear you talk because uh, for whatever my th- for whatever my testimony is worth it's like i fully know you and i know that you're not lying or bullshitting or have some other reason to it's like i know that you're the first person that is going to critically trying to break down the theories or look at all the holes in the game plan to see what doesn't stick and you're now at the point, really, of saying UFOs are are here. We know they're here. They've been here ages. We have proof. It's not a question yeah. in your mind anymore. Yeah, and on top of that, so the bit where I was like, okay, well, why are they all, it's all American. It's all happening in America. And it's like, well, no, it's not. It happened in, okay, an American Air Force base in the UK, in Rendlesham Forest. But not only that, there was leaked KGB documents saying that the exact same things were happening in Russia at the same time in the Cold War. So they thought... So they were both thinking each other, the Russians have sent something over to switch our nukes off, and the Russians are thinking, the Americans have sent something over to like tamper with our nukes. Fuck. So for me, it's like, that kind of rules out the fact that it's either Russia or America making these things back in the 60s, let alone now. Well, I'm, I, I, I would have thought maybe naively, that at this point, when there's no way in hell that the Pentagon is going to come forward with verified, declassified videos in the manner that they have, unless they have 99.999% assurance that this isn't another international superpower like screwing around with them. 
they wouldn't do it. They'd keep it under wraps. And this is the moment where we look at the news that happened in the last couple of days where, I mean, this is this is the overturning now of 100 more declassified documents and videos from the Pentagon. That's just happened recently uh, in the yeah, sense that they're saying they're going to give it over in June, I think. Yeah, apparently there's, there's going to be some big disclosure of some information that they have on the subject. So then, and, th- and again, this came from Patreon. Someone said this on Patreon. Why? Why are they telling people? Why are they putting this out in the public now? I think by this stage, they've kind of figured out this cannot be in our enemy's arsenal from America. This isn't Russian. This isn't Chinese. And vice versa. It's probably China's probably corroborated with someone else and figured out it's not American, it's not Russian. And I think probably we're at the stage now of as humanity going, guys, <laughs> we thought it might be you. We kept it under wraps, but now we don't know what it is. I think we all need to have a look at this and have a have a work out what it is. Do you think that there's a possibility that behind closed doors, there's such a concern about the fact that now all of these international superpowers are going, there's been stuff floating around in our, our atmosphere for so many years that they're kind of overturning it in the hope that like the hive mind of the planet and all of the experts and all of the people who are, who are you know, well-versed in doctored footage and understand, they must be sitting there thinking, surely someone in the public is going to be able to tell us what this stuff is. Well, if not that, then also opening up and kind of cutting out the stigma of it. Whereas before, someone might be embarrassed to come forward with a, some footage that they might have of an experience where they'd seen something in the sky out of embarrassment. Whereas now that information might actually be very handy to start linking bits of the puzzle together and go, well, oh, well, this craft looks like that one at this date. And th- they manoeuvred in the same way. And this one used this propulsion system to do this. I can and see start how that would dots. be the case, especially if you're a commercial pilot, especially if you're in charge of lives. Well, there's I... a lot of commercial pilot reports on these as well. Yeah? In uh, Unidentified Season 2, you'll have um, a couple of interviews from pilots on there that have seen lights unexplained, filmed it on their phones. Yeah, there's, there's lots of reports. Wow. And uh, when you said this is a motion to try and maybe undo the stigma to, to what, like start some task force now to try and start to, to unpack the problem well, it's just it's funny isn't it US, the us have started making their space force <laughs> um to have superiority in space around about now as well so that's funny timing <laughs> but probably because more, now more so to to dominate the world in terms of making sure that they're in control of the next level up space as opposed to china or russia so based, look, I mean, I know for everyone listening, again, this is probably a lot to digest in one conversation because maybe there's people out there who are listening going, don't don't buy this guy, Ben Kovic. He sounds like an idiot. He sounds like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, don't buy it. And there's probably other people who are just realizing like, holy shit, there's UFOs on our planet. And as we talk about this spectrum now uh, and you think about everything you've seen and done, from zero to 100, and I'll ask you two questions. The first one is, from zero to 100, how likely do you think it is that there really are UFOs flying around on Earth? Uh, I'd say 100 now. You'd say 100? From everything I've seen, and from the sources that they've come from. There are definitely UFOs flying around in our atmosphere. We second, don't know what they are. second question would be, from zero to 100, what do you think the likelihood that these are extraterrestrial craft? So, before I answer that one, 
there's two other stories that would back up this point as to why I'm pretty much swung now to having the only logical explanation to all of this as being they're not from Earth. They're either extraterrestrial, extra-dimensional, they're from under the sea or something like some, somewhere we don't know. It's SpongeBob. But it's we, SpongeBob. as humans, haven't made them. So as part of linking the other stories that I've already told, mm. the white cigar shape, tic-tac shape that we've had described in 2004 in the Nimitz case and in 1976 at the UFO sites, at the, at the uh, nuclear sites, missile bases, I've linked another video. Uh, it's from Salida in, in Colorado. And this video is taken on a handy cam from a guy just filming out in Colorado with his daughter. You can hear them talking on the camera. And he is filming this thing up in the sky on a clear blue day. It's a white cigar-shaped object just hovering there. And you can hear him in the description as he's describing it, saying he saw this thing. It must have covered 100 miles in a couple of seconds. Completely unrelated story. No chance that it's been linked to any of the other ones and he's just describing exactly what we've seen in two other independent stories it's too weird that's too freaky yeah and the other thing maybe to mention because again I, I had a little look at some stuff there's a lot of people on the net who are really 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 good at all of the highest technological ways of manipulating footage yeah so the the thing to bear in mind is nowadays it's actually pretty easy to see if footage is doctored and this stuff holds up i mean obviously it's vetted by the pentagon so yeah <laughs> you, you, the assumption is that they're not sitting there you know cgiing stuff yeah. and sending out but there are people in the public space who are cgi experts who are the best in the world at doing this stuff so yeah. if this stuff was being doctored or manipulated people would have ripped it's, it apart, it's pretty really. easy to rip this part and a lot of these sources that you're posting are sources that you've gone through you've obviously yeah. uh, vetted them yourself so as that, you do go into researching this but you've got to tell me the second Second is that actually three now i thought the other one the, the yeah. third the third video that was released um called gimbal you see this ufo craft in the sky slowly rotating 90 degrees just as bob said this thing works <laughs> as, a, as another complete like weird link between stories said in 1989 is it from commander fravor or uh, is this, this from was a... from 2015 from the uss roosevelt Right, okay, so a couple of years ago, this is, again, shot uh, camera footage from yep. a, a fighter jet, pod. again, same thing, right? Yep. Yeah, and you see this thing slowly rotating, and you hear the guys on the radio saying, look at that thing, dude, like there's a whole fleet of them on the ASA, on the radar screen. Same thing, 2004, Kevin Day's picking up in, on his radar, a whole fleet of them. A whole fleet of them 11 years later, 120 knots against the wind, like doing these 90-degree rotations. And it's like, what are the chances that what Bob said about this thing rotating 90 degrees when it wants to move it's fast? It's all a fluke. It's all luck. He just got it all lucky. And, the, and then the very last one was the story of um, Robert Jacobs, who was tasked with photographing intercontinental ballistic missiles to figure out when they went wrong, what happened with it. If something had popped off or burnt out, he'd send it to the engineers so they could fix the missiles, right? So they shoot missiles up. This guy had to film the thing as it was flying and go, oh, that went wrong there. Yeah. Right, okay. So do. he's tasked um, with filming these things. It's a, a pretty hard thing to do. I mean, we're talking like filming something from 190 miles away. <laughs> like, it's a crazy distance to do it with massive telescopic lenses. I mean, how do you even do that? Just go up and build a massive crane? He went on top of Big Sur, like a huge hill in California, 
And okay. He, right. So he was filming these ICBM tests um, at Vandenberg Air Force Base. And he had successfully filmed the test launch of a dummy warhead and handed the film into his superiors that they all like cheering, like happy that they'd done it. They managed to capture it. And then the next day, he gets brought in by his superiors and gets sat down and asked to watch the film that he recorded. And he said, in the film, you can clearly see, bearing in mind that this, this ICBM rocket is probably going on its trajectory path from 4,000 miles an hour all the way up to probably 4, uh, 14,000 miles an hour as it's accelerating towards space. He said, this UFO, saucer-shaped with a little bubble on top, catches up to the missile, right. fires a laser from the top at the warhead, rotates around it, fires another shot, rotates around it, fires another shot, rotates around it again, fires another shot, and then disappears back from the way it came. And the this guy said... Weird. This is too much. And the guy said, this is were too you messing weird. around up there? Right. And he said, no. You can see his testimonial again on footage. You can watch it. Yeah, in the watch, watch his interview. And if you've ever seen some compelling footage of someone not lying for me that's him like he is not lying about that you can tell in the determination in the way he's telling the story um this is this happened to him as a real experience and the footage was cut out chopped away never to be spoken about again understandable i guess again at the time at the time it's understandable why it would have been kept under wraps i think this is where this is where i am half freaked out and half excited because i want to try and do a series like this with you when these big drops happen because again i have got a lot of watching to do because i want to keep now i'm so i'm so moved by this because we haven't (laughs) i'm i'm rambling my words here but like we haven't spoken about this as in length really as as brothers to this level of detail and i think i'm so freaked out by the research you've done and the things you've tied together that my next step, I want to watch these links that you've put in YouTube, and then I want to wait and see what's going to happen in June this year. It's just around the corner. Yeah. The Pentagon's going to turn over a bunch more evidence, and then we're going to have to do another episode and see where this takes. But I don't know. Like, are there any are there any kind of closing thoughts that you have when it comes to how you feel about talking about this? Or like, I don't I don't know. How how would you want to close this first part off? Well, I guess in normal life, like it's such an afterthought. The idea that we're talking about here that extraterrestrials are possibly visiting earth and that they've been here for a while like in, in normal life that just sounds completely crazy but when you actually sit and think about it it really isn't when you think about the scope of the universe and the scale of it you know mankind we've only just about managed to start flying in like 1903 we've we've gone from figuring out how to fly to landing on the moon in less than 70 years now in the in the grand scheme of the scale of the universe, that is nothing at all. Imagine that a civilization is thousands, millions of years ahead of us with technology far more advanced than us. Why wouldn't they be able to get here, travel here and observe us? We're now at the stage we're at creating SETI to try and find out planets that can have life on them. We're doing that now. And when we do find them, the first thing we're going to do is probably send some drones there. And after we send some drones there, we're probably going to go and visit just out of curiosity because that's what we do as humans. So why can this not be a possibility the other way around that this is actually happening to us? But, but why? 
the, the other side of this is why are they doing it which is the kind of unnerving and unsettling thing are they just observing us like we're in a zoo just making sure we don't like burn ourselves down <laughs> are they making sure we don't burn the planet down before they need to come and live here like are these just drones that are here are they piloted by et like there's so many questions that are yet to be answered with all this but it's so important i think for us to know because this technology if we can harness it and use it it's a complete game changer for the world for humanity to go from burning coal and oil to power ourselves to move forward versus having a gravitational generator that can make us travel thousands and thousands of miles an hour instantaneously that's that's a massive step part of why i don't think this could have been done in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s i just don't think we could have made that technology then we know what so many more questions to answer and i think that's such a good note to to end this first episode on i mean look for everyone out there whether you're watching on youtube whether you're streaming on spotify um thanks for listening and i I hope you found this interesting if you do want to come and support this go and check out patreon.com forward slash kovic you will get the first episodes of the next uh thing that we're going to do as a as a team um and i will be getting ben back on here as soon as the news drops of what's going to happen in june we're gonna we're gonna carry this on and my hope is some of those questions you're talking about slowly but surely we'll get some answers but listen thanks for listening to episode nine thank you for doing this ben cheers and we'll see you next time see you later